The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. As we begin this Advent season, uh, we are going to begin a very exciting study. Uh, but before I introduce that study to you this morning, I want to encourage you, uh, if, you don't, if you don't mind, to, to call to mind a picture of Jesus as you have learned about him throughout your life. Call to mind, go in your mind's eye to the scriptures and imagine Jesus and, and, and whatever it is that comes forth from the episodes of his life that the gospels tell us about. I wonder, I wonder what pictures come to mind for you. So we approach Christmas time, perhaps uh, it's, it's the image of Jesus uh, in the manger uh, at Bethlehem, Bethlehem's manger. Maybe as we've just recently finished a series on the Sermon on the Mount, maybe, maybe in your mind you can go and, and imagine Jesus sitting on the Mount and, and teaching the many gathered to listen to Him. Maybe, maybe for you it's the image of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or taking the children up in His arms and blessing them. Maybe it's the image of Jesus standing by the grave of Lazarus and speaking with the word of authority, bringing Him back to life. Or in the upper room with His disciples, administering what would become for us the Lord's Supper and the communion sacrament that we celebrate. Maybe as you think of Jesus in your mind, you can picture Him uh, carrying a cross that was not His own to carry as an innocent man, bearing the sins of His people, or perhaps dying as a substitute for our sins there on the hill of Golgotha. I imagine, as I encourage you to do, that the visions of Jesus that you call to mind by memory are, are very likely to be all episodes of his uh, pre-resurrection state. That, that's probably obvious because the Bible gives us the most information about that. The stories that we learn about Jesus, the ways that he teaches us, are all prior to the resurrection. What I want to do in, in this Advent season is, is go beyond that image of Jesus. Not that there's anything wrong with it. In fact, it's entirely lovely. But the Advent season for us is not the same way that it was for those early believers who were anticipating the coming of the Messiah because, of course, Jesus has already come, which is why we can call those images to mind and remember His ministry as He walked this earth. That was his first advent, but the Bible tells us that there is a second advent. And we are not like the Old Testament believers who were waiting for the coming of the Messiah. We are Christian believers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ awaiting his second coming as he comes with power and glory. In his first coming, which was shrouded with humility, we find Jesus quietly entering into the world. But in His second coming, as He comes with triumph, it will not be a quiet coming. So we want to go beyond Bethlehem. We want to go beyond the first advent with a focus to the exaltation of Jesus Christ in His heavenly glory 
and the anticipation and preparation for His coming in His second Advent. Because Advent is all about the purposes of waiting and longing to behold the fulfillment of the promises of God. And you and I need that. We don't need it in the exact same way those Old Testament believers were waiting for it. But we need it in a similar way. We need light to come into our darkness. We need hope to come into our hopelessness. And we need peace to come into our troubled minds and hearts, don't we? We need that. And the Jesus that we are waiting for is the Jesus that we will see together as we study the book of Revelation. So, we are turning together to the book of Revelation for our Advent season this year in 2020. And as I've been sharing that with people and telling them, I have friends ask me, what are you doing for Advent? What are you preaching for Advent? I say, we're going to study Revelation together. I get a little cross-eyed look or I get a sideways glance or a comment over the phone that says, what? You know, are you sure about that? And I've had a few people uh, among the church community say the same thing. Wow, really? Uh, Revelation and Advent? The answer is yes, yes. Let's go together to Revelation chapter 1. And before I read the text, let me just, let me just give you a, a few introductory details as we approach the book of Revelation. Uh, remember that the early church was small and a persecuted bunch by the mighty Roman Empire. The outward appearances of the church of Jesus by earthly measurements seemed weak and impotent, and the idea of spreading the message of Christianity all over the world was really seemingly an impossible task, especially up against the mighty Roman Empire that oftentimes persecuted them. The book of Revelation is written to encourage that outwardly small and outwardly weak group of Christians with the confidence of where all world history is really headed. Revelation is written to encourage. But the book of Revelation is oftentimes inaccessible, especially to Christian believers now, because we don't understand that main purpose of the book of Revelation, that it is intended to encourage and bless and strengthen. And the reason why it's oftentimes seen as inaccessible because it is a different kind of literature in the Bible. The Bible contains different types of literature, and the book of Revelation is in the category of what we call apocalyptic literature. And actually, if you look in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation in Greek is apocalyptus, which is where we get the word apocalypse. So the original wording of the book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ to John, the revelation to John. So as a revelation, as an apocalypse, it is an unveiling of things that God wants the church to know in language, in pictures, and in forms, and shapes, and repetitions, and numbers that cause the church to be filled with wonder and amazement that dazzle and shock us. That's the point of apocalyptic literature, to bring us out of normal understandings into heavenly glories and make us peer up to these realities. And what we read about in the Gospels, when we think about the person of Jesus and his ministry on the earth, what the Gospels give to us in spoken form as Jesus teaches, the book of Revelation is like a picture. You have, you have speech in the Gospels but a picture in the book of Revelation. Another way of saying it is this. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And if you can take that, Jesus saying, I will build my church and nothing will prevail against the church. That's like a snapshot. And the book of Revelation is like a a moving picture, a high-definition 4K picture of the reality that Jesus is building His church. And although the gates of hell are seeking to assault the church, they will not prevail. The book of Revelation is the moving picture, the high-definition vision of that reality. Can the book of Revelation be understood? Yes, of course it can. It's not intended to discourage you. It's intended to encourage you. But we also recognize that being apocalyptic literature, not everything seems immediately apparent or is as it seems right away. There is a danger oftentimes of losing the forest for the trees, chasing the details, and missing the big picture. And as I've been studying this, I've already been guilty of that. I'm guilty of wanting to chase this trail and that trail, but we're going to keep our eyes on the main thing. And here's the main thing. In the book of Revelation, you can sum it up in one sentence. God is the Lord of history and will bring all things to their appointed end in and through Jesus Christ. God is the Lord of history and will bring all things to their appointed end in and through Jesus Christ. So, have I I primed the pump enough for us to read the text? Let's, Let's pray and we will hear the Word of God in Revelation chapter 1. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we open Your Word this morning, we're thankful that we have the ability to do so. Thankful that we have a Bible. Thankful that You give us grace to understand it. But now, Lord, I pray, come by Your Spirit. Come by that Holy Spirit that so revealed to John these truths that encouraged the early disciples. And Lord, reveal them again to us and give us courage. Give us peace. Give us hope to lay hold of Jesus Christ in all of His majesty and in all of His mercy. Oh Lord, come. Illuminate our minds. Give us understanding, we pray, and bless to us the reading and proclamation of Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, let's hear together. Revelation 1 at verse 9 through the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Amen. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So may he write its eternal truth on our hearts today. Well, at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John is given a vision of Jesus and a commission to write down what he sees. And you and I, as uh, generations of Christians, are the benefactors of that vision, the benefactors of John's obedience to write down what he saw. But this morning, we want to go with John in the Spirit and read about what he saw, and as it were in the Spirit, see it ourselves. What does John see? It's remarkable, isn't it? It's absolutely remarkable. He sees Jesus. But he sees Jesus in a way that he has never seen Jesus before. And this is John. The John, who is the author of the book of Revelation, is the John that you think of when you think of John. He is the author of what we call the Johannine Corpus. The book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the Gospel according to John. This is the John that is identified as Jesus' beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, who walked on earth with Jesus, who was as familiar with Jesus as any man could be in Jesus' earthly ministry. And he has this vision of Jesus and sees him in ways that he did perhaps like in Matthew 17 when John goes up the mountain with a very select group and sees Jesus Christ in his glory. Here the veil is taken away and John sees even more than that than he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. The one who John saw in the flesh, now John sees by the Spirit And he sees that just by looking upon the flesh, he has not yet begun to comprehend the infinite glories of the ascended Christ. Right? We sing that in one of our Christmas hymns, don't we? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. John, in the book of Revelation, is taking us into the glories of the triune God, especially the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And as you think about Jesus, again, as I encourage you to do at the beginning, there are really three grand episodes in the Bible of the revelation of Jesus in the fullness of who He is. And they kind of increase as they go through in terms of significance. The first one is, as I said, Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured before John and He is shown in His heavenly glory. The second greatest one is here in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. And the greatest image of Jesus 
greatest image of Jesus is found in Revelation 19. And we'll get there later this month, Lord willing. But John receives this vision of Jesus in the Spirit on the Lord's Day as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, as he is their prisoner on the island of Patmos, which would have been a prison colony. The Spirit allows John to see. He is like a New Testament prophet. But in the Old Testament, prophets were spoken to and then they spoke. John is different because he sees and then writes. He beholds the glory and majesty of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus to write then an encouraging word to the church about who their Savior really is. And the church is told to hold everything else in comparison to the glory of Jesus. Even the glory of earthly Rome. Hold the Roman Empire up against the glory of the ascended Christ and you have no comparison. None. So we're going to go in the Spirit with John to hear what it is that we saw. And we'll see it in two ways. First of all, the majesty. The majesty of the exalted Christ. And then secondly, the mercy of the exalted Christ. So first of all, the majesty of the exalted Christ. Let's think about that there as we look in verse 13. When John has heard, first of all, the call to write as you see in verse 11. Verse 12, he turns to see what it is that he has heard as he hears this incredible voice. He turns to look at the voice speaking to him that he saw one like a son of man. In verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, the phrase son of man was Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's what Jesus most oftentimes called himself in the Gospels. And, and John, we, we realize that he writes this word, and we recognize it along with him, that he's talking about Jesus, of course. But there's more to the phrase son of man than we often think. Usually, when we think of the phrase son of man, we think about it with respect to Jesus' humanity. When we hear the title Son of God, we think about Jesus' divinity. When we hear the Son of Man, we think about His humanity. But it's, it's more than that, actually. It's like a link in an email, right? A hyperlink. Something in the text that when you click on it, takes you beyond the text to something else. And the book of Revelation is full of, if you like, hyperlinks that if you click on them, they take you beyond the book of Revelation into somewhere else in the Bible as John is pulling together all of this biblical imagery to speak about Jesus. And the link here in verse 13 that Jesus is like a son of man is with reference to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel chapter 7, especially verses 13 and 14. Listen to the book of Daniel in chapter 7 as Daniel writes about a vision he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel uses this word, this title, Son of Man, 
as representing the great king who is invested with royal dominion by the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And so right away, when John uses the word in verse 13, one like a son of man, it is with reference to the fact that Jesus is God the Father's ordained ruler, coming with dominion and authority and power, that he is the mighty king. In the book of Daniel, the son of man is contrasted with other beasts, and those beasts represent earthly empires, symbolizing the evil kingdoms of the world. And in contrast, the son of man stands with universal and eternal dominion. And it is applied here to Jesus in his state of exaltation. What does John see? when he sees the exalted Christ. The detail here in verses 14, 15, and 16, they're incredible. I'll just, I just touch each one very, very quickly and summarize it. Verse 13, John sees his long robe and golden sash, which is represented of uh, dignity. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel speaks of the Son of Man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold. It is a a signal of royalty. Verse 14, his white head and hair is again a reference to Daniel 7, 9, where it is said of the Ancient of Days, his clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool, expressing both dignity and the accumulation of wisdom, which is a good reminder to us that the Bible considers gray hair the accumulation of wisdom. But this is white hair, dazzling whiteness, the purest wool, the whitest snow, purity. And it goes on, and every single one of these phrases is again like a hyperlink that takes you somewhere else. Verse 14, his blazing eyes. Daniel 10 speaks of eyes like flaming torches, divine insight that penetrate to the core of our very souls. Listen to the way one commentator explains this when he says, John is declaring that Jesus Christ with his blazing eyes is not only pure like fire, but that he is purifying. Fire illuminates and penetrates, but it also cleanses and burns away impurities. The eyes of the glorified Lord not only look at us, they look through us penetrating the masks and veils behind which we hide our true being. That is both good to know and very scary and painful, but liberating because Jesus can look through all of the facade and see who you really are with his blazing eyes. Verse 15, his bronze feet is a reference to Daniel 10. Verse 6, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze representing refined purity and strength, that wherever he plants his feet, there does he rule with an unshakable, immovable reign because his kingdom is unassailable. No matter the plans and the wickedness of men and earthly kingdoms and the rise and fall of this world's armies and kingdoms, the kingdom of God is firm. Verse 15, he speaks with a powerful voice which is drawing on Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel 43, verse 2, saying that Yahweh's voice is like the sound of rushing waters. Have you ever heard a a great rushing body of water, maybe a waterfall or rapids? It roars, doesn't it? You can hear all around the rumble and the strength. John says that 
Jesus' voice as the Son of Man is like the roaring of many waters. And he has already had his voice described as loud as a trumpet, booming with declarations of a sovereign, speaking, expecting to be heard and obeyed. Verse 16, his right hand, the hand of power and action, he holds the seven stars. And John later explains to us what that means. But here you have common imagery in the Roman Empire. Roman Caesars would love to depict themselves with the planets all around them as if to suggest their cosmological glory and greatness. But Jesus is the one who not only creates, he holds within his hands. Here is Jesus, verse 16, with a sword from his mouth. Universal judicial authority. It's a reference to Isaiah chapter 11 as one who will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus reappears with great significance in chapter 19, whereby Jesus destroys all of his enemies fully and finally by the sword that comes from his mouth. And verse 16, his radiant face, like the sun shining in full strength, resplendent Glory, As Psalm 84 verse 11 says, God is a sun and a shield. That the Lord is our everlasting light. All of this imagery is applied to the glory of Christ in His majesty, in His ascended state. Now, here's what we do with this. This picture, all of these various pictures, are not intended to be a literal depiction, but rather a metaphorical image. That is to say, we are not supposed to put all these pieces together and say the sum of these things is the picture of Jesus, white hair, blazing eye, bronze feet, thunderous voice, sword protruding from the mouth, but rather the accumulation of these images together communicate one clear reality. His majesty. His incredible majesty. What does John do when he looks at this Christ? And this, this, is why, this is why I think it's helpful for us. Because Christmas is not just about a baby in a manger, is it? It's about who that baby really is. And it is not until you get to the fullness of His ministry and the glory of His resurrected and then ascended state that you are able to see that's who He really is. What does John do when he realizes it? Verse 17, When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. John is laid low. He is put in the dust. It's a moment just like the prophet Isaiah experienced in the commissioning of his ministry in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he throws himself down. There, there is a glory to Jesus Christ that defies a casual glance. There is a glory to the person of Christ that defies all attempts to treat Him and look upon Him casually. Jesus is not comfortable. Jesus is not easy to look upon. And those who are shown something of the glory of Jesus in the Scriptures, 
do not generally find themselves basking in his resplendent glory in a warm haze of ecstasy. They find themselves falling down. John, like the prophet Isaiah, when he was drawn into the presence of glory, responds in holy awe and amazement, speechless. I am undone, Lord, in the face of this majesty. This is the majesty of the exalted Christ. And I want you to see it. I want you to see the glory of it. I want you to be amazed by it. But then also, note what happens. This exalted Christ who is full of majesty and divinity and dominion and power and glory and strength, who brings John virtually to an end of himself. Do you see what happens then in verse 17? I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his hand upon me. He laid his hand upon me. Not to strike John down, but to lift him up. What a moment that must have been. That's incredible. That scene. John prostrate on the ground. And Jesus reaching out his hand to lift him up, saying, fear not. Fear not. So as we see the majesty of Christ, I want us to also see His mercy. The majesty of the exalted Christ and now the mercy of the exalted Christ. As we see continuing here in verse 17, as John has fallen at Jesus' feet and Jesus laying His right hand upon Him, in order for Jesus to do what He did to John, you see in the very, as the verse continues, if Jesus is standing in glory and John falls before Him, what does Jesus have to do in order to lay his hand upon John who is prostrate down on the ground? He's got to stoop down. Does it seem like an incidental detail? That John who is face down before Jesus, that if Jesus is to reach out and touch him, that he is to stoop down. Even in His glorified reality, Jesus stoops down. And I want to ask you, do you see the narrative of the Gospel in that? Do you see the narrative of what Christmas is all about in that? Jesus laid His right hand upon John, the hand that signifies authority and blessing and strength and sovereignty, and He crouches down, stoops down to lay His hand upon John. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things? That our Savior stoops down down, that he gets low, not just at the beginning of his earthly ministry, his incarnation, but throughout his ministry. He stoops down to write in the sand when men want to stone a woman caught in adultery. He stoops down to give them pause. He stoops down to walk dusty Palestinian roads with his disciples. He, he humbles himself. He stoops down and comes low when it comes to giving himself over to the cross, he stoops down to the point of death, being buried in another man's grave, and he still stoops down. Even in his state of exaltation, he stoops down to extend a hand of mercy to John. That's the beauty of Christmas, isn't it? That Jesus, in all of his glory, bends down lowly to reach his hand upon those who worship him. Isaiah 40, verse 11 says that he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart and gently leads those who have young. How does a shepherd 
gather lambs. I don't have any personal experience in this. Nevertheless, I understand the picture. If a shepherd is going to gather a lamb, the shepherd must bend down and hoist the lamb up and hold him close to his heart. That's what Jesus does for us, even in his state of exaltation. Not only that, but we're also told in verse 16 and 20 that in Jesus' right hand, he upholds the stars, but it is with the same hand that he is upholding the stars, which represent the church, that in verse 17 we're told that Jesus lays that hand upon John, as if to communicate to us that simultaneously Jesus is able to uphold the church and have compassion for the individual people within it. That's an amazing thought. That Jesus can at the same time uphold all things and reach down to you as an individual with care and compassion. Even in His exalted glory, He has this mercy. And we learn here that He is present among His church. The visuals that are given to us here in the seven stars that he holds and the seven lampstands that surround him come from the imagery of Israel's temple. And we're told again that they represent the church on earth scattered around through Asia Minor. And these particular seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Thardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, the number seven is representative of the whole church. There are more congregations than just these seven in Asia Minor, but they represent the fullness of the church wherever it exists. That's why there's seven. And they're listed in a particular order in which the scroll would have been carried to bring this particular message. But the point is here is that Jesus, as the head of his church, is present among all of his church. He knows them. He knows their situation. He holds them in his hand, as he has promised to do, where they dwell in security because, as he tells us, no one can snatch them out of my hand. The appearance of the church as lampstands represents their calling to reflect light of God's kingdom in the darkness of the fallen world. And this is a word that God has given to the church and to us. And to us. Where we are called to continue to be light, acknowledging that Jesus is present amongst us, giving us confidence. Have you been tempted to, to, to lose confidence and to lose hope and to be discouraged in these days? Of course you have. In one way or another. Some of us more so. Some of us less. Some of us willing to, say, to speak about it. Others of us unwilling to say so. But here, the vision of Christ in His majesty and mercy is intended to infuse Christian believers with confidence as they received it in the first century. They find Jesus saying again in verse 17, Fear not. Why? Because I am which calls back, do you remember ruling Elder McPenry's preaching series through the I am statements of John? Here is the culminating reality. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. In the first century, in the middle of the first century, Nero was the Roman Empire. He had been throwing Christians to the lions. Later on in AD 92, uh, Domitian murdered 40,000 Christians because they refused to accept his claim to be Dominus et Deus, meaning Lord and God. The cult of the emperor was intended to communicate, Caesar is Lord and you must bow down. And Christian believers would not do it. They 
would not do it. And so many, many of them gave their lives because they would not say Caesar is Lord because their confession was in their hearts that Jesus is Lord. Even in the face of death, He is supreme even over death as the resurrection conqueror of the grave, the last enemy to be destroyed. It was the enemy of death that the Romans used against the Christian believers. And here Jesus speaks these words to remind those who are in Christ that if you are a Christian believer, the power of death over you is as empty as Jesus' own tomb. Meaning, it's got no power. And Jesus has a word to his church and he tells John to write it down. Now, here's where I have to remind myself as I remind all of us that we are not doing a full study of the book of Revelation. If we were doing a full study, we would chase all of these different things and explain all these different things. But the point is that the Advent season, for all of its goodness, is not intended just to get you to linger on a baby in Bethlehem, but to linger on the glory of who that baby really is. Getting the glance of him that John had and provides for us here. We take that significance and we carry it forward into our life because the purpose of the first coming was to gather that church up, to gather believers who would live inside of his kingdoms. But now we're scattered, as the various congregations were in the first century, scattered around. We are scattered just like they were. We need encouragement just like they did. We need light in our darkness. And here, the book of Revelation is saying, Jesus dwells in the midst of his church. He hasn't left it. He never will. He upholds it by his power. And there is none greater than him. And he is speaking by the authority of his word and telling John, write it down. Write it down. So that they will always know Christ is Lord. This is the Christ. The resurrected Christ who has defeated death. The ascended Christ who in radiant glorified body. The exalted Christ who reigns from heaven. And if you are a Christian believer, it is this Christ that you must worship as John did in verse 17. Falling down. Which is that refrain, right? To that beautiful Christmas hymn. Fall on your knees. And worship this Christ. Christmas is about knowing this Christ. Worshiping this Christ. This is the Jesus that we need. In all of His majesty. And in all of His mercy. This is our Savior. And we're going to be spending this Advent season getting to know Him more deeply so that we might be more encouraged with who He really is and live our lives in the confidence that He supplies by His majesty and His mercy. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank You for this Word. And we pause and confess that it, it causes us to, to pause within ourselves. Realize who Jesus truly is. Lord, help us to fix our gaze upon this Christ. And so, Lord, lead us in a way that we might live in the confidence that Christ is Lord always and in the face of everything, we pray in His name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.